Well, good morning, everybody. My name's Daniel. I'm the discipleship minister here at LeClaire, and it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, as Andrew said in our announcements earlier, if you haven't already, make sure you grab one of those Connect cards and fill it out. If this is your first time joining with us, I want to encourage you as you leave today, uh, bring that card by the Welcome Center. We've got a gift that we'd love to give you. Uh, also, today, if you'd like to give as you leave, we've got these black boxes at the back of the auditorium. You can drop any tithes or offerings in there, or you can give on our website. Uh, this past weekend, we actually had a, a trip for our preteen students called Superstart, our fourth and fifth graders. And um, as actually, I was just talking to one of the adult leaders that went, and he said it was just a whole lot of jumping. And so I know it's a weekend full of pizza and soda and candy and jumping. I don't know about you, but that sounds like an amazing weekend. Uh, so gratitude to all of our adults that went and, and helped out with that. But this is my, my daughter's first year to go to something like that. And she came home just absolutely thrilled. Loved getting the chance to spend time with her friends. And, and I love that we can, we can do these kinds of things. And we're able to because of your generosity. We're able to, to put on trips like that and help our, our next generation begin to form relationships with one another, with, with Christian friends that, that I know will be uh, encouragements as they continue on in their life. And uh, so if you'd like to give today, you can do so in, in a number of those ways. Now, I love to ride roller coasters. I love going to theme parks. That's the first thing I want to do when I go in is, is find the, the tallest, the highest, the fastest roller coaster and, and ride those. Um, but I married a woman who does not like roller coasters at all. And throughout the course of our time together, I've tried to convince her to just go with me on one roller coaster. And I've tried a number of ways. I mean, I've said, listen, I'll do, you know, I'll do all these chores around the house. I think one time I even offered to pay her like $100 if she would just ride with me. Uh, I've gone the manipulative route and I've said like, listen, if you really love me, you will join with me and, and something that I, I enjoy. Um, but she still hasn't. So I guess we know where her commitment lies. So, uh, so anyway, once I realized that I was never going to win that battle, I thought, well, maybe I can get at least one of my kids to ride roller coasters. And so I've got three kiddos, and they're, they're young, they're growing up. But last year, we, uh, in April, went to go celebrate my son's sixth birthday, part, or birthday and we went to Branson to Silver Dollar City. I know many of you have probably been there before. And my daughter, who was eight at the time, um, I thought, this, this is a good time to kind of try out riding a roller coaster. Now, if you know Felicity, she is very hesitant to do just about anything. In fact, the, the day before, we had gone to this sort of indoor park with tubes and things to climb through, and, and I went through one of those, you know, courses with her, and at the end, there was this big slide it wasn't really that intense, but she did not want to go down the slide. And so we argued because I was not going to go crawl back through all the tubes. I said, we're, we're going down the slide. But it got to the point where I eventually had to just like anchor my feet at the top and like lower and extend my body as far down as I possibly could so that she could slide like the next two feet down to the bottom. <laughs> so that gives you an idea of where, where she's at as far as thrilling things go. But that night she woke up the next morning just resolved that she was going to be brave today. And I thought, this, this is good. We can work with this. And so we're going to Silver Dollar City, and, and we walk in the park, and she said, I'm going to ride a roller coaster. And, and so we pick sort of a, a medium-level one. There's, there's a, a roller coaster there uh, called Thunderation. It's kind of like a, a runaway train ride. No, no big hills or no upside-down loops or anything. It gets kind of fast. And, 
And so we write it, and, and, and she, she does it. She does so, so good, and she's so proud of herself. And I said, that is, that's amazing. And for me, I was, like, I was thrilled. Like, I, I don't want to go too far, too fast, because I don't want her to hate this. So let's, let's start slow. Uh, but then she pointed to, like, the biggest coaster in the park. It's right there at the front. You can see it from miles around called Wildfire. And she said, I want to ride that next. And I was like, okay, I mean, are, are, you, are you sure? Because at this point, I know that she is going to be miserable if she rides that. And as a dad, I, even though I wanted her to enjoy that, I wanted her to do those things, I was a little cautious myself. And so I said, well, how about let's just kind of go about our day. If you still want to by the end of the day, we'll, we'll, we'll see. And so she was just continuing resolve that she was brave today. And, and so sure enough, she still wanted to ride it. And so we get in line, and, you know, I thought maybe once she sees it, maybe she'll change her mind, but she kept to it, and we, we finally make our way to the ride, and we get on, we put on our, our harness and our seatbelt, and, uh, and then it begins. And, you know, like most roller coasters, there's this slow chain that takes you up to the top, and Wildfire is one of those that you get to the top, and it kind of curves around, and then you have the first big hill right into this big loop, and so as you're going up the chain, you see what you're getting ready to do. And so she looks over and says, wait, is that the ride? <laughs> and I said, yeah, it is. And uh, she's like, I don't want to do this. And I was like, well, it's a little too late. So we are committed. And so she is panicking. We're climbing this hill. And, and so I'm there now to convince her, listen, this is a really fast, it's quick ride. It'll be over in like 30 seconds, okay? If you need to just close your eyes and hang on, I will hold your hand throughout the whole thing. And so we get to the top of the hill, and I can just feel the tension in her small 60-pound frame. And we take that first hill, and she is just as tense as can be. Her eyes are closed. I don't think she's seeing anything that we're doing. And the whole ride, I'm telling her, listen, it's, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. Just a couple more turns, we're almost there. Just, just one more loop, we're almost there, we're there at the end. And, and finally it comes to a stop. And, and I think just in her elation that it was done, she thought that she enjoyed it. But uh, she, she uh, was so, so glad to be done. And, and man, I got to tell you, as a dad, I was so incredibly proud of her for doing something that I knew was way out of her comfort zone. And I actually, I remember going back and telling my wife just about the experience, and I, I started crying because I was just so proud of her for, for doing that. Um, she's not been on it since we've been back, and we've been back multiple times. But, uh, but, but she did it that one time, and it was, it was so incredible. I think it's in this same spirit of pride that often Jesus looks at his church and sees when we persevere through difficult times that that just brings so much pride to him. And we see that specifically in one of the churches that we're going to be talking about today as we go through this series, Seven Words to the Church. We're looking at two specific chapters in the book of Revelation. They're probably the two chapters that, that make the most practical sense in the whole scheme of things, and, and they are Jesus' direct words to some specific churches in the region of Asia Minor. Now, there are, by this time, several churches that, are, that exist in the Roman Empire and beyond, but Jesus speaks to these seven because likely these are the seven churches 
that the Apostle John spent most of his life ministering to and leading. And right now it is John who is having this vision from God that he is asked to record to be able to spread not just to these seven churches, but to all the churches and to all the Christians throughout the Roman Empire. And I think also eventually to all Christians throughout the world and throughout history. And so John, at this point in his life, is well along in years. He is likely the last of the 12 apostles still alive, as most of his comrades have likely succumbed to persecution and to martyrdom. And so when we pick up this account, John finds himself in exile on this small island called Patmos, just to the west of the mainland where all of these churches were located. And in one of the last moments of his life, Jesus appears to John in a miraculous way. He has him write down all of these things that, that, that he sees. And so Jesus appears to John, and this is John, the, you know, the disciple that, that knew Jesus very well. He was one of Jesus' inner three. He was the one that, that Jesus entrusted the care of his mother to whenever he was on the cross. So you know that this was an important relationship. And here he is, one of the last apostles, and, and Jesus has one final message for the church before this era of the apostles comes to an end. And so, before we get into the specific verses here about the church in Smyrna, there's a couple of things I want to say about these, these addresses to these seven churches. Now, I, I love these two chapters, Revelation 2 and 3, for a couple of reasons. One, I love that these are the direct words of Jesus to his church. And I think there's a lot of times that these passages get, get overlooked. You know, for as Christians, we, we do believe that the entire word of God is, is God-inspired, but there are obviously certain sections of Scripture that we spend more time on talking about and preaching and teaching. And, and the story of Jesus' life in the Gospels, what he teaches is one of those. Jesus is the primary way that God has communicated to us about who he is. And so we spend a lot, of, a lot of time there. We often say things like, you know, I think Jesus would have us do this, and I think Jesus would, would think this about whatever topic. But these letters are still the actual words of Jesus, and they take a lot of the guesswork out of trying to decide how and, and what does Jesus desire for his church today. And as we look through that, we see several different things in several different ways and how, how we ought to live as Christians and how we ought to live as, as the church. And these chapters, along with the first chapter in Revelation, they also provide a fuller picture of who Jesus is. It's easy to look in the Gospels and see this man who is no doubt compassionate and kind and gracious and loving, and those are all absolutely true. But then we also see a picture here that he is also a very intense and terrifying warrior who cares so deeply about his people. And he does not tolerate the sin that has taken humanity captive. And it's important that we recognize Jesus for who he fully is. That we don't just pick the parts that sound nice and seem nice to us, but recognize that he also is incredibly holy, incredibly powerful, and fully deserving of all of our worship. That's one of the reasons I like these chapters. The second one is this. It's important to us that you guys know that you are a part of something so much bigger than what we have going on here just at LeClaire. You, you are a part of what's often called the Capital C Church. 
that every Sunday when we come together, we know that there are other faithful brothers and sisters all around the world doing the very same thing. And not only that, but you come after a long history of men and women who have sacrificed their lives to make sure that the good news of the gospel has continued on. I mean, you are here today because of that sacrifice. And it's important that we recognize that. But I love that here, Jesus brings some validity to the local church. We see that he values and cares for each of these individual churches. He recognizes the unique situations that they are in. And I believe the same today, that Jesus looks here at 1914 Essex Drive in Edwardsville, and he knows about the situation that you are in and that we are in as a church, the challenges that we might face unique to where we are at. And I hope that encourages you and helps you recognize that you are a part of something that has eternal significance that's not overlooked by the creator of the universe and that you play an important role here. Now, in these letters, Jesus brings to light how each of these local churches is or is not proving what they claim to believe by how they live. Now, there are some admirable qualities that Jesus mentions and, and he shares, which is so important for us to remember what matters most and what we are doing as a community of Christ followers. But there are also certain things that Jesus condemns because they don't reflect a life of faith that we've been called to. Last week, we looked at this first church in Ephesus, and, and Jesus was uh, you know, commenting and, 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 and joyful because they, they, they persevered and they worked hard. They did a lot of important ministry work. But as he said, they had lost the reason for why they did it. I mean, the Christian life is, is a very active life. I mean, sometimes you'll hear people say things like, you know, being a Christian is not about doing, it's simply about being. And, and I can understand the sentiment behind that. But I don't think that fully reflects the reality that, no, we, we are called to do as well. That authentic faith is always demonstrated, but the doing can't be the reason that we earn the salvation that we have, but it is a response of the salvation that we have. And this church in Ephesus had gotten things backward, and, and, and Jesus said, hold up, hold up, let's get back to the real reason why we love well, why we serve well. And he encouraged them to re-embrace the grace that they had received, to remember the heights at which they had fallen at the beginning. Today we're going to see another way that Christians prove what we claim to, to believe, and it has everything to do with how we handle those difficult situations that are thrown our way. Today we'll see this simple truth that Jesus honors those who don't give up. Jesus honors those who don't give up. Now, I don't know where you are today, but maybe you're in a situation where you just are maybe at the end of your rope. And I want you to remember that even when no one else sees, we have a God that does. And he honors those that don't give up. The church in Smyrna was one of the first and foremost they were known because of their perseverance. When life feels overwhelming, or maybe when the cost of following Jesus seems too great, or perhaps you've felt alone in your convictions lately. Or maybe there are people around you, faithful Christians that you have seen make horrible decisions. Or maybe you're, the time that you spend with God each day that used to bring you 
so much uh, joy and used to reinvigorate your passion is just leaving you still feeling empty and you don't know what to do. Maybe when you feel like there's no one around you, there's not a community that, that understands you, maybe like you had before. Or maybe you're in a place where if you never see a human being until the day you meet Jesus, that would be fine with you. Whatever it is, Jesus beckons us to not give up. To not give up on the life that he's called us to. To not give up on the community that we've been called to be a part of. Now, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. These are the words of the creator of the universe to his church here in Smyrna. He says this, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as a victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now, surprisingly, Smyrna is one of two churches that actually don't receive any negative remarks from Jesus. So what's happening here is probably worth us paying attention because obviously they're doing something right. Uh, now, now, Smyrna was an interesting city. It was a port city along the Aegean Sea, much like Ephesus that we talked about last week. And they tried so hard to vie for the top spot in, in their economy and in their power and in their influence, but they could never quite compare to the well-known uh, city of Ephesus just to their south. But what they lacked in overall influence and commercial power, they made up for and their allegiance to Rome, and their allegiance to the emperor. In fact, Smyrna was one of the very first cities to build a temple to the goddess Roma, which was kind of the patron goddess of the city of Rome and the Roman Empire. And then a couple hundred years later, about the time that Jesus was on earth under Emperor Tiberius, they were again one of the first cities to build a temple now to the emperor himself. You see, at about the time that, that Jesus came to this world, there began to grow this idea of, of seeing the emperor, this human being, as divine and worshiping as such. And they were one of the first places to have a temple to carry out that worship as, as this practice began to grow along the same time that the church was beginning to spread, a group of people that worshiped uh, a king not of this world while you have an empire that is really cracking down on forcing people to worship a king who is of, of this world. Now, Roman citizens, they were required to go and visit a temple like this one in Smyrna once a year to offer incense and to offer, uh, you know, worship to the emperor. Upon their act of worship, they then would receive a certificate saying that they had proved their allegiance. Those who didn't participate ended up being shunned by their community. Their businesses were boycotted. They were left out of market guilds. They lost their jobs, and they became outcasts to their society. This is why Jesus says that he sees their poverty, because their very means of making a living was hampered. 
And the choice of true obedience to him was a great sacrifice to the Christian living in Smyrna and the greater Roman Empire. And by the time Jesus speaks these words, what began simply as economic pressure began to grow and ended up becoming mandatory under the threat of prison or even death. Now, there were some people in the Roman Empire that were excluded from having to worship the emperor in this way. Now, even though the Jews and the Romans, they did not get along for many centuries now, Romans recognized some of these uh, older uh, religions like Judaism, and they allowed them to be exempt from imperial worship. And early in the life of, of the Christian, Christians were kind of lumped in with Jews because they came out of Judaism. They, you know, Judaism was a religion that pointed to the fact that a Messiah was coming to save the world. And Christians finally recognized that Jesus was that Messiah. And so many of them still continued to go to synagogue uh, each and every week. But now they just had the full truth of, of who Jesus truly was. And since their faith was based in Judaism, for a time they experienced the protection of this title. But as time went on, the Jews and those who began to feel threatened by Christians wanted to make a clear break and a clear distinction between the two groups. And so one of the ways they did this is they began to become informants that would turn in these Christians to the Roman officials and basically say, these guys are not true Jews and they should not be exempt from worshiping the emperor. And all it took in those days was a simple testimony from someone else for someone to be convicted, thrown in prison, or even sentenced to death. This is why Jesus refers to these Jews in this passage as slanderous and a synagogue of Satan. And it was here in Smyrna that the church was one of the first to experience intense persecution. But it's in the midst of their trials that Jesus comes in and sees their situation and reminds them to not give up. Now, I'll be honest, sometimes it's difficult to talk about passages like this in the church today, and particularly in our own context, where we have so much freedom to come and to worship without such a significant threat. As this week, as I was getting ready for this message, I, I was watching a story about a woman who uh, had a family, her and her husband, and these two small children, who, who was, was a Christian in Syria, and during a time when a lot of the outside threats were growing. And she had to figure out a way to resolve, like, should, should we try to get out of the country? Should we try to move? Like, what is our next, like, what's our best course of action? And eventually she kind of finally resolved and came to terms with the fact that she might die for her faith. And she talked with that with her husband and, and they, they resolved that that's, that's what they were going to do. But then she shared about the challenge of, you know, it's one thing to say, you know, I'm willing to give my own life, but then to say that you're willing to give up your children's lives. And she talked about how hard it was to think about that decision, but her and her husband had ultimately resolved God had given us these kids and he may take them away. And she still, even after making the decision, still wrestled with it. But then she shared she had to sit down and have the hard conversation with just with her two kids, probably, you know, seven, eight years old, and begin to tell them, guys, there, there might be a day that someone comes barging through our door, yelling and shouting not very nice things, and we just need to remember to forgive them, to remind them that Jesus loves them. And then she goes on to say, and, 
it's very possible that, that they, they might hurt us. There could be blood. They might kill one of us. They might even kill you. And it might hurt. But if you're afraid, just close your eyes, and the next thing you'll see is Jesus. I can't, I can't imagine having those conversations with, with my kids. But the reality is there, there are Christians around the world today that are, are sitting down at the dinner table and having those kinds of conversations. And I think from time to time it is important for us to know that. Not only to be praying for our brothers and sisters that are truly in some very tense moments, but also just to recognize the freedom that we have now and to not take that for granted. Now, for us, it may not be outright persecution like this, but even the challenges of living fully for Jesus, loving people who are hard to love, giving up and being willing to sacrifice what is difficult to do so, seeking to live like Jesus, to be patient and waiting on the Lord in certain situations, to be forgiving of those who don't deserve it, to love those who have hurt you. The Christian life is and will always be a, a call to come and die. And Jesus acknowledged that even when it seems like you get no return in this world, he sees you and he values your perseverance. So don't give up. Now, there are a few underlying ideas that I think can help us when we find ourselves in moments where things are rather difficult. The first is this. We, we need to recognize that adversity is inevitable. Adversity and challenges are a part of this life that we are called to. Recognize that adversity is inevitable. And Jesus speaks multiple times to his followers, saying things like, in John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. In Matthew 5, blessed are you when people insult you and, and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And in John 16, in this world you, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus has long taught his followers that if you want to follow him, you do need to be willing to face some of the most difficult things because of that decision. Following God does not mean we now have this magic genie who can grant us all the good things in life that we desire and want to experience. But it is a promise that we will get to spend eternity with him. And in the meantime, we face challenges looking ahead to that future hope. He even tells the church in Smyrna to expect a 10 days of persecution. Now, this is likely not a literal 10 days. I know people have different interpretations of, of, of Revelation, but probably more of a phrase to say, hey, things are going to get intense for a short season here. And many commentators also believe that this is one of, uh, of many Old Testament references sprinkled throughout the book of Revelation. And this one specifically referring back to a story we just talked about two weeks ago of Daniel and his friends who were tested for 10 days in the nation of Babylon. And by saying this, Jesus wants the minds of his followers to remember that facing difficulty is a part of what it means to be a part of God's people. And you are not the first 
to face things. But it's those who persevere in trials that are revered. Listen to what Jesus' brother James says in James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Suffering is normal for God's people. And those that we admire, those that we honor, are people that have faced some of the most challenging moments and have persevered throughout, like like the prophets in the Old Testament and like Job. This is part of who and what we're called to today. So if we want to suffer well, we need to recognize that this is an inevitable piece. We also need to make sure that we don't misjudge the source. Don't misjudge the source of our adversity. While Christians in in Smyrna were being turned in by Jews and while they were facing imprisonment and death from the Roman government, Jesus makes sure to recognize that this might be what it is on the surface, but deep down there's a greater enemy. That's why he calls the Jews a synagogue of Satan. And that's why he credits the devil as being the one who throws them into prison. Far too often it's easy for us to blame others political leaders or parties or other humans in authority for the source of our struggles. But when we settle for a more superficial reason for our adversity, we are likely to get caught up in a more superficial solution and neglect the real issue at hand. We have to remember that our struggle is not against flesh and blood primarily, but it is against the evil, dark spiritual forces of this world. And when we correctly discern the root issue, then we realize that we are are no match and cannot overcome without the power of Jesus Christ. And so we cling to him. Don't misjudge the source of our adversity. So remember, it's inevitable. Don't misjudge the source. And finally, don't allow fear to dictate your response to adversity. Jesus admonishes this church here to not be afraid of the things that they're going to encounter. There is no doubt that we live in a world that seems to be growing increasingly fearful. I mean, you can hear news stories of, of, of this, you know, next generation that's growing up that is more hesitant than ever before, hesitant to go off and, and start a life of their own, hesitant to go get a driver's license, hesitant to, to, to move on. It's so easy to be crippled by fear. But fear has long been an enemy of faith. We see that throughout the Old Testament. Examples of people like Abraham, who who God had promised a son to, but who kind of trusted and and was at some point a little fearful that that was ever going to happen. And so he took matters into his own hands and and had a, a son through somebody else. And this created a lot of future conflict. Fear of the Israelites when they were facing the Philistines and no one wanted to go out and battle this giant Goliath even though they had God on their side and it took one small boy who seemed to be no match 
for this warrior to go out and show what it looked like to have faith. Or fear when, when the Israelites were waiting to go into this promised land that God had been talking about for, for many, many years. And when they go and they see these Canaanites in there and they see how big and how tough and how strong they look, they cowered in fear and felt like, no, we, we, we're not going to be able to do that. And they neglected the faith that they had in God. And because of that, the whole generation didn't get to enter. Fear is a great enemy to faith, but Jesus reminds us of what we see in Scripture, that there are really only two things that we need to fear. One is God himself. The fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. And the second is nothing. When you have God on your side, there is nothing left to fear. That's it. In fact, later in this book, Jesus outlines a list of people who are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And, and in that list, you have things like liars and, and the faithless. And, and you also have those who are cowardly. The Christian life is, is one that recognizes that God is ultimately in control. Whatever happens to us. When you think of your life today, is there an area in which you know that God wants you to step into, but man, it's so hard because... Of your fear. Jesus honors those who do not give up. Now, from Christian history, we see after John spends his life here on earth that there, there's actually another guy, one of, one of probably many people that he discipled and that, that he raised up. And it's, it's a man by the name of, of Polycarp. Kind of a funny name. But, but Polycarp was just a young man when he would have known John, who was well along in years. And, and from history, we know that Polycarp grew up and he actually became, uh, was appointed the leader of the church here in Smyrna, probably by John himself. And it's so fascinating because I think the spirit of this church that we see here in Revelation also seems to be the story of his life as well. And now Polycarp was known for being a firm believer, and he was known for standing true, especially when there was lots of heresy going around in those early decades of the church. And he grew to be an old man well along in years, but he too also faced some of the persecution that was going on. And as the story goes, he's now a man well into his 80s. He was just resting in his country home when some people come to arrest him because of his faith. And as his story goes, all of his friends had encouraged him to, to, to run out and to hide, but he wasn't going to do that. And as, as his assailants came in to take him away, he just had, had a couple of requests. First of all, he, he offered them food and drink and was hospitable to them. And he said, before you take me, can, can you just let me pray for an hour? And so they said, yeah, that, that, that's fine. You're, you're, really, what, what, what threat are you to us? And so what began as one hour of him praying out loud, even with his enemies right there in earshot, turned into two. And it said that those who came to arrest him began to think, like, why are we arresting this, this guy? He, he, he poses no threat. But they ended up taking him to the proconsul anyway. So they marched Polycarp, Polycarp down to where crowds are gathered to be sentenced and because of his age, the proconsul was, was being gracious. And he said, listen, listen, all, all you have to do is just denounce Jesus and give praise to the emperor. And we'll let you go. It's an easy choice. You don't want to go, go through this. 
And this is what Polycarp says. Eighty and six years have I served Christ, nor has he ever done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my God who saved me? And at this, the proconsul ordered him to be burned at the stake, to which he replied, You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after that, or after a little while, is quenched. But you're ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. And as the soldiers were ordered to go and bound him, he refused and said, You don't have to bind me. I'm going to stay put. And then he says, Why tarriest thou? Bring forth what thou wilt. Which is a fancy way of saying, What are you waiting for? Bring it on. And so they light the flames. Polycarp looks to heaven. He says, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. And I wonder in that moment, after years of serving the Lord, if, if Polycarp perhaps thought of the words of his Savior to the church that he ministered to throughout his life, I am the first and the last who died and came to life again, if you are faithful, even unto death, I will give you a life as a victor's crown. Maybe for many of you here today, you just need to hear that reassurance from your Savior that says, just hang on a little while longer. Just lean in and cling to me. Close your eyes. It'll be over before you know it. Let's pray. God, we are so honored to be in your presence this morning. And I know that there's probably a myriad of challenges that, that people are facing here today, and I know even here today, and, and, and I just ask, that we would just get the encouragement we need to hang on a little longer. To know and to trust that we've seen throughout history the ways in which you honor those who love you and to trust that you continue to do that today. I pray you give us the strength. I pray you give us the perseverance of a church that honors you and can demonstrate in our difficult times that what we say we believe is absolutely true by how we live. We thank you for being so good to us, and we do pray for strength. We love you. It's in your name we pray.